Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. He, that is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have opened your word, help us to behold wondrous things. Even this text, which is heavy and weighty, but help us to see the weight of glory in it. And prepare our hearts continually to receive it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great burdens of ministry in this modern age of pragmatism and consumerism is having to battle against the tide of what is often called easy believism. Now, what is easy believism? It's the notion that to be a Christian, all you have to do is theoretically believe in Jesus with no real impact or effect to your life and heart, and you'll be saved. Don't want to go to hell? Super easy. Just say the sinner's prayer, repeat after me, or raise your hand at the altar call, and voila, you're a Christian. And now you may go on your merry way, live however way you want, and I'll see you in heaven. Congratulations on signing up for this uh, eternal insurance policy at practically no cost. I mean, it was pathetically easy, wasn't it? Just give some cognitive assent and acknowledgement of Jesus, and you're good to go. Now, what I've just described to you is what the vast majority of people think it means to be a Christian. In fact, this is what the majority of professing Christians in this country believe, because this is what the majority of churches and pulpits preach. It is a dumbed-down, watered-down version of the gospel so watered down and diluted that it has lost all its salt. It is a false gospel. It is a false salvation that cheapens and mocks the grace of God and what he has come to do for and in sinners. And tragically, it's this lie that sends countless professing believers who think they are Christians, it sends countless of them to their eternal peril. Again, all the while, giving them a false sense of security that everything is just fine. 
And whenever I contemplate this heartbreaking reality, I often think to myself, if only those pulpits, those churches, took just one Sunday to preach out of a passage of scripture like this one, to which we've turned this morning. If only those people had just one opportunity to hear from Jesus' mouth about how narrow the door of salvation is, I wonder how many souls might be awakened, spared from their eternal ruin, and rescued unto true salvation and life in Christ. Because you see, Jesus' words here are so arousing and so jolting that you cannot read these words and remain in the lie of casual Sunday Christianity. These words are actually such a mercy and grace from him that he doesn't sugarcoat anything, but makes it crystal clear for our sake that being a Christian, being saved, is not this easy, nonchalant life, this blasé religious view that you hold merely. No, here it is, plain and straight. The true Christian life, by God's grace, is that which demands everything. Your whole life, your whole heart, your whole soul. It is a new life altogether in Christ, bound to Him. Look, following Jesus... Truly believing in Him with authentic saving faith is not just having Jesus as a nice accessory in your life, but it is having Jesus as everything, Him as sovereign Lord and ruler over your life. This is true salvation. This is the good news that Christ has come to be our Savior, Master, and Lord. And perhaps some of you today need this awakening. You need to wake up. I don't know who I'm talking to, but God knows, and I hope you know too, that it's possible for all these years, you've lived what you thought was a Christian life. But all it's really been, is just the motions of church attendance, keeping up with good tradition, having a nice moral compass, But all the while, you've never been born again, literally, in Christ. Born again into a new life of pursuing Christ. You don't know what that means. And if that's you, it has been my prayer that as you hear Jesus' words, that you would have the humility of heart to come to acknowledge your real spiritual condition so that you would come to the true Christ, follow the true Jesus of the Bible, not some circus caricature of him. But for those of you who are truly in Christ, Jesus' words here are given not to make you doubt your salvation, but to actually strengthen and confirm your true and living faith all the more. And it's been my prayer that God would do that for you. But regardless of who you are, whoever you may be, the fact remains that when we come to a passage like this, every single one of us in this room, myself included, must take, humbly take the opportunity to consider our own souls before God and God alone. Jesus here is calling each and every single one of us to solemn, honest self-examination. This is what he's stressing right out of the gate in this passage. 
because we begin in verse 22 by seeing that Jesus continued on his way, headed to Jerusalem, traversing through many towns and villages. And as we know, wherever Jesus went, many crowds congregated around him with excitement and interest. I mean, he was the talk of the town. It was like when he was in, the, in town, it was like the Beatles having a concert. But it's always the case that Jesus and all that he says seems very interesting and fascinating until you really hear what he has to say. And you quickly realize that he didn't come to tickle people's ears and tell them what they wanted to hear. Because he was calling for sinners to come to the end of themselves, to repent of their sin and and, and to surrender themselves to him by faith that they may have life in him. Now, this was a novel concept for the Jewish crowds to whom Jesus was preaching. Because the Jews, by virtue of their Jewish blood and religious heritage, they thought they were perfectly kosher. They thought they were already God's people, inherently favored by God, simply by the fact that they were Israelites by blood. And so in a sense, they believed that they didn't really need to be saved. And the only salvation that they cared for and assumed that they were getting was just a political salvation to be saved from the Romans, uh, their enemies, their political enemies. This is the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Or or just to be saved from their personal problems, be saved from financial hardship, be saved from sickness, disease. And so the idea of salvation for the Jews in their mind was it was a given something that they were entitled to, something they assumed to be a well-deserved blessing that God would bestow on them. In fact, ancient Jewish records during this time show that the general mindset and the popular thinking among the Jews was that all Jews would be saved. All Jews would go to heaven, with the only exception being the worst of them and the absolute immoral criminals. But otherwise, many, if not most Jews would be saved. And of course, the vast majority of Gentiles would be unsaved and damned with maybe a very few short list of uh, exceptions like the really good proselytes of the uh, Bible, uh, Ruth or Rahab, these Gentiles who converted to the Israelite faith. So you see, the question of salvation for the Jews was as simple as asking, am I a Jew? Do I have Israelite blood? Great, good to go. Already saved, going to heaven, thanks God, I'll just keep myself busy until whenever you show up to bring me the big windfall of good fortune, prosperity, and blessings that I clearly deserve. And it was against this backdrop of the kind of thinking embedded in the mind of the Jews that Jesus constantly had to teach about the necessity and urgency of individual personal salvation. How everyone, including the Jews, needs to individually repent of sin, seek God's mercy and forgiveness, and bear the fruit of true repentance. And so on this particular occasion, as Jesus was going through the towns and teaching, one fellow in the crowd piped up and asked Jesus, scratching his head, saying, Hey Jesus! You're making it sound like we got to actually do something. You're talking like there's a problem with us, as if our souls are in jeopardy, and that something drastically needs to change within us. Something needs to happen. And in all of this, you're making it sound like it's not such a guarantee that we, by virtue of being Jews, are perfectly fine, as if salvation is not a given for all or most Jews. Are you implying then, Jesus, that only a few will be saved, contrary to what we've all been taught? 
Oh, are you saying that this whole salvation thing is not so easy after all? Now, you can see the modern equivalent to this question. Hey, pastor, why are you always preaching the gospel to the people inside the doors of your church? Shouldn't you save that for all the bad and moral people out there who don't go to church? Don't you know I've been going to church almost my whole life? You're making it sound like it's not such a guarantee that by virtue of us being churchgoers, that we're secure and have nothing to worry about. So what's the deal then? Not all of us are going to heaven? Only a few? If so, who? Well, as Jesus usually does, he responds not by answering the question directly because it was a bad question. And he just goes ahead with his own teaching. So as to say, look, don't mind others. Mind your own self. Mind your own soul. And so verse 24, he says, he said to them, speaking to everyone individually, you strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. Make every effort. Because the door is narrow. And it requires your careful attention. Your wholehearted exertion. The door of eternal life is a difficult door. You must engage all of yourself to enter it. Do not think that it is some casual stroll through the mall with those big automatic sliding doors where you don't have to think about it. No, it's rather like a little opening of light you see from within the rubbles under which you are buried. You must squeeze yourself through agony and ashes to push through to the other side. This is the narrow door of true biblical Christianity. Make no mistake, anything else is a counterfeit. It's an illusion. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, hey, wait a minute. This is starting to sound like works-based salvation. As if it were all based on human effort. And we have to do all these things and atone for our own sins by all this doing and striving. What's up with that? I thought the gospel was all about grace, free, unconditional love, saved by grace alone and not by works. Well, absolutely, that's the gospel. Salvation is a gift from God. It is all His doing. Jesus has finished the work once for all on the cross. The grace of God is truly free and unconditional. And in order to be forgiven of sin and secured unto salvation and eternal life, all that sinners must do is to confess their sin Turn to God in faith. Put their full trust in the sufficiency of what Jesus has done and already finished and accomplished by his death and resurrection. But listen, the issue is this. Jesus is not describing here how to get saved. He's describing here the life of one who has been saved this door is the door to the eternal feast as you see in verse 29 at the end of your life when it's all over and the race is finished in the meantime those who are saved run this race which requires striving strenuous effort so understand that this life of striving and wholehearted struggling is not the prerequisite of God's grace and His salvation, but it is the product of it. 
And if this life was never produced in you, the question is, did you really receive the salvation that Jesus came to bring? Did you really encounter the saving grace of God? Or did you put your hope in an entirely different false promise of salvation that Jesus has nothing to do with? You see, the heart of the issue is whether or not we have a real, robust, accurate, biblical understanding of what salvation actually is. This is the root problem. The reason why easy believism thrives is because we've cheapened salvation as merely a get-out-of-hell-free card. But we have to understand that the salvation Jesus offers is not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but it is to save us from the power of sin, our bondage to sin. In other words, salvation is not just being delivered from the consequences of our sin, but it is us being delivered from sin itself, its influence, its impulses, its governance over our lives. Because look, it all begins here, okay? That we were created by God, you and I, to know Him, to trust Him, to obey Him, and to love Him. Okay? That is our inherent design and purpose. As human beings, therefore, we were not created to be independent and self-governing persons. We were not created to be the captain of our souls and the master of our fate. No, we were designed to be totally dependent on our maker for life, for direction, for purpose, for truth, for knowledge, for every aspect of our existence. We are meant to be bound to God, and happily so. See, we were made to enjoy and thrive in a loving relationship of submission and obedience to God as our perfect authority, our perfect Father, whose authority, whose every commandment is the words of infinite love and instruction and wisdom for our highest good. So it is under God's governing authority that we find our chief satisfaction, our fulfillment, our blessing. But what we have done as sinners is to rebel against this created order. And every single one of us, deep within our hearts, underneath the facade of good morals and a nice smile, deep within every one of us as sinners, we have declared mutiny against God, saying to Him, I will be my own God. I want to live life under my own control. I want to be my own master. I want to decide for myself what is good for me and what is not good for me. I will possess the key of the knowledge of good and evil. My will be done in this life. This is what sin is at its root. It is the heart of rebellion against God and against His governing authority. You see, in short, sin allures us with the promise that we can be our own master. But actually, it only enslaves us to ourselves. I mean, just take a look at the world today. Our culture has reached the peak of self-exaltation. Everything is about me, 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 self, self, self. The virtue of all virtues in this age 
is freedom of expression. Be true to yourself is the message of the times. That's what the kids are being inundated with. You, you, no limits. Freedom. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be, do it, be it. You can be whatever you want to be. Choose your own gender. Choose your own truth as if truth were relative because in postmodernism, absolute truth doesn't exist anymore apparently. Good luck trying to get that to work at the bank, at the bank when you're withdrawing your cash and you realize you don't have that much money. They're not going to believe you. Look, we've, we've built this entire postmodern society on the pillar of self. Unrestrained love of self. And yet ironically, sadly, Although everything has been bent over to revolve around the self, what do we see? Depression is at an all-time high. Suicide at unprecedented rates. Anxiety, insecurity, fear. Mental health is uncontrollably fragile and unstable. People are miserable. Despite the promise that you can find limitless happiness and pleasure in doing whatever you want, whatever is right in your own eyes. This is the deceit of sin. It enslaves us to ourselves. And it brings us misery. And this, my friends, this is the sin that Jesus came to save us from. Not only from the eternal punishment we deserve, as rebels against God, but to deliver us from the life of sin, the life of enslavement to it, the life of being dominated by it, the life of being lost in darkness, the life of self-pursuit, a heart that has been warped inward. Christ came to bring new life in Him, the life of pursuing God. So you see, Repentance is not just saying, Dear God, whoever you are, I really don't want to go to hell. And I've just heard from the nice church service that I've attended because I'm such a good boy or girl or good man or woman, that the correct answer is Jesus. And it's not Buddha, it's not Muhammad, that is Jesus. So, dear God, I agree to acknowledge Jesus as the correct answer. Therefore, please don't send me to hell. Thank you, amen. I hope to see you someday, but not so soon, I hope because there's a lot of things on my bucket list I want to get done before I have to finish this life. Look, who doesn't want that? It's so easy and frivolous. But here's what true repentance looks like. It is when a sinner realizes and confesses, Lord, I am a sinner. I realize, I see now that I have rebelled against your ways. This entire life that I've been living I've lived for myself. I, I, I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had only led me to the grave. Lord, I see now that what I need more than anything is to be reconciled to you, to be restored in fellowship with you, to return to the relationship with you that I was created for, to bow the knee to you. Because I believe now, I see now that therein is all of my happiness and joy. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my life of sin, my heart of sin. 
Cleanse me of all unrighteousness and make me yours. Please give me a new life, a new heart altogether, that I might walk in your ways, a life of pursuing you and submitting to your good and perfect will. That is true repentance unto salvation and life in Jesus Christ. You don't have to have articulated all of that. In fact, the joy of the Christian life is growing over time to deepen your understanding of what God did to save you. But that fundamental attitude, that that kernel mindset, even if it's not coherent or expressible at the time, that is the new birth imparted by the Spirit of God. In essence, true repentance is the turning away from self and turning to God. And this marks the beginning the birth of new and true spiritual life. It begins a lifelong pursuit of God, the race of faith. But look, this holy pursuit is not easy. In fact, it's the most difficult life. Because as born-again believers, we're no longer of the world. We belong entirely to Christ, having died to ourselves with a new holy nature birthed within us. And yet at the same time, We physically remain in this present fallen world, still in the residue of our old selves, the old sinful flesh. And so for every true believer, there's now a tension within him. You desire the things of God. You want to please him. You want to honor him. You want to live for him because your eyes have been opened to see how praiseworthy he really is. But you feel your very own flesh warring against you, hindering you. I mean, some of you wonder, why do I find it so hard just to be in the word and have a rich prayer life? I mean, I'm asking for good things. I want to love God. I do desire him. But why do I feel like I have to overcome this massive boulder of spiritual inertia just to do that basic thing on a daily basis? It's because you're feeling that tension with your flesh. The spiritual battle within. And this is why Jesus portrays the life of a true believer as a striving. You see, this striving is not some effort to accomplish a lot of spiritual achievements to impress God with the hopes that you'd be good enough for his approval. No, this striving is the very nature of Christian living. It is the determination of one whose heart has been born again and set upon God to be a man or woman chasing after God's own heart Despite all of the hindrances and obstacles, it is a lifelong struggle with all the ups and downs. In fact, the word Jesus uses here to strive to enter is exactly what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 4 exhorts the believer. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, in your striving against sin. There's an encouragement for you, Christian. Keep going. Don't give up. It's normal. Don't be discouraged. Again, it's what Paul would later encourage Timothy. Oh, man of God, flee unrighteousness, flee ungodliness, and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, and love. Fight the good fight of the faith. Strive the good striving of the faith. They're simply echoing Jesus' words. This is a true Christian life. 
It's not some passive, casual Sunday Christianity. But it is a life that it demands your everything. A life of holy resolve and exertion. And every believer will arrive at the gates of heaven with blood, sweat, and tears, mostly caused by the suffering and turmoil within and their struggle against their own sinful flesh. Do you now see why Jesus said what he said? Not only about the striving, but about many being unable to enter the door. It's because this is not the salvation people want. Too many people want salvation only for the selective benefits. No hell, everlasting paradise. I love Disneyland, so hey, heaven sounds like Disneyland forever. I don't have to pay for tickets anymore, so that sounds great. I want that. So some vague sense of comfort during difficult times in life. These selective benefits. They want those. But they don't want to turn away from how they've been living their lives. They still love their sin. They still love autonomy. Being in control. They don't want God. They refuse to surrender their lives to Him. And in so doing, they don't actually trust Him. They distrust Him. They may call Jesus Lord, but deep down, they know who the real Lord is over their lives. It's the man or woman they see in the mirror every morning. So you see, the reason why only few enter the door of salvation is not because God is hard to find. It's not because God makes himself inaccessible or difficult. But it's because relatively few look for the right door. Because very few want the right door, the real salvation. Because the true gospel salvation, it it delivers us from our slavery to sin. And people don't want that. That is why so many people who claim to be Christians will be in for a horrifying surprise in the end. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25, down to the very end of the passage. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I don't know where you come from. And he'll keep saying, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets, but he'll say, I don't know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, all you doers of lawlessness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east, west, north, south, and recline at table at the kingdom of God at this feast. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. There will be a shocking reversal for some in the last day. Do you want to try to sugarcoat this? You can't. The heat of divine urgency will burn through every granule of sugar sprinkled on it. And notice here how Jesus takes extra measure to preemptively dispel any attempt at self-justification. Because he knows that many that day will object and say to him, Lord, how could you not let us in? 
Didn't we eat and drink in your presence? You know what that's really referring to? Didn't we take communion? Weren't we members of your church? Lord, you, you, you taught in our streets. That is to say, Lord, it's not like I attended one of those prosperity gospel churches. I went to a solid Bible preaching church. I actually put myself under the faithful teaching of your word. Every single verse of it. In fact, our pastor has been going through the gospel of Luke for what feels like the past 40 years, even though he's only in his 30s. And we're only in chapter 13. Lord, we did all the right things. How could you deny our entry? How could you say that we were never saved? Because, as Jesus will say that day, but I never knew you. I don't know where you come from. Meaning, I don't know who you are. You're a stranger to me. You must be from out of town. Have we met before? You see, true salvation, true saving faith, true Christianity is knowing Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus is not enough. Anyone can do that. Even participation in the ministry of Jesus' church is not enough. The only question that matters is this. Do you know Jesus? Do you personally know Him? Does He know you? Do you care to know Jesus? Do you have any love for Him whatsoever? This is the defining mark of the new birth, that you have a desire for God, that you want to know Jesus more and grow closer to Him, even through all the struggles and stumbling. Actually, it's the fact that you struggle at all against your sin that serves as an indication that you have indeed been born again and that you have this newly birthed disposition to know God, to walk in His ways and to please Him. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. No affection. No affection for Christ whatsoever. Then let him be accursed. Why does Paul say that? It's because you can't fake affection. Because affection is the honest impulse of your true innermost desire. And to encourage all the believers in this room, notice how Paul didn't say... If anyone has not enough affection for the Lord, let him be accursed. If that's the case, we'd all be accursed. If anyone had a bad week where they didn't love God very much, he's done for. We'd all be done for. But the question of the authenticity of your salvation is not, do you love God perfectly, flawlessly? But it's, do you love God at all? And many times, it's actually your distress and discontentment that your love for God is weaker than you'd like, which serves as one of the key forms of evidence of a beating spiritual heart. It's because you have this affection that you're bothered when it's not exercised and kindled and experienced to the fullest enjoyment. But this is the dividing line between the narrow road and the wide road. Do you personally and sincerely know Jesus as your dear Savior, Lord, and friend? Is Christ not just someone 
who stands at the gates and you need to find some way to appease him so he'll let you in. But is Christ lovely to you at all? Is there anything in you that's attracted to him? That's won over to him? That loves him? Is there anything in you that genuinely sees and recognizes and happily confesses that he is worthy of your entire life? Do you care for his will? Do you care for his commands, for his honor? Do you believe that Jesus is the rightful king, not just over this world in general, but the harder question is, do you believe that he is the rightful king over your life? And that he alone possesses the rightful authority to rule and govern your life by his word as written in scripture? Or, Do you, despite how many years you may have been in the church and called yourself a Christian, do you in the secrecy of your heart, do you reject him as Lord? Do you say in your heart, okay, Jesus, thank you for dying for sin. I believe in you. I want to go to heaven. It sounds great. But until then, Jesus, you stay in your lane, okay? Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me what I can do or can't do. That is vile. God sees it. If this is you, you must repent of your wickedness and rebellion despite whatever outward appearance of Christianity you put forth. If this is you, you profane and desecrate his glory with your unclean lips that professes his name in vain. You make Jesus out to be some dimwit who can't see through the veneer of your empty religion. Your whole life is a slander against Christ. You make a mockery of the glory of Christ who is worthy of everything. If this is you, do not be deceived. If you remain as you are, even if you succeed in fooling all the Christians around you, even if you succeed in fooling your pastor, you will not enter the kingdom of God. On the last day, it will be exposed what a lawless man or woman you really were, a true rebel against his will. And you will be cast out into the outer darkness and you will be weeping and gnashing your teeth at the God you secretly despised your whole life. Why would you insist on remaining the way that you are? Come bow the knee to Christ. He is a better Lord over your life than you are. I can promise you that. There is still time for you to truly turn from your sinful ways, to repent of your sinful heart. You can still come to the great eternal feast, the heavenly gathering of all of God's true people from every corner of earth, from every generation. Look, church, You have to understand, 
this is my burden as your pastor. The, the reason I toil and do everything and all I want is for you all to make it to the feast. To make it through the narrow door. That's all I want. I don't want anything from you. I genuinely don't. It's not that I go around doubting everyone's salvation. You know I don't do that. But it's just that I know that in any and every church, it's always the case that there could be some hidden even within the refuge of church membership who have never been converted to Christ. Who've never experienced a new birth and their hearts remain as hardened as ever. And they might succeed in deceiving me, but that's only to their own dismay and catastrophic loss. And so in the spirit of this text, all I'm wanting to do is to convey a general call of awakening to the congregation. And may the Holy Spirit be the one to press the specifics into each individual heart. Again, for those of you who are indeed born again, May Jesus' words here confirm your faith all the more. And I only have words of encouragement to you. Let's keep fighting the good fight of faith. Keep striving to the end. Don't think that it's strange, that it's difficult. But through every toil and tribulation, press on because that feast is going to be so worth it. But if you've been listening to this, And you realize that despite all your years in the church, perhaps you have never embraced the true gospel of God's salvation. Then please come talk to me. Please. I am here for you. I will sit down with you. There is no shame in this. I'll try to answer your questions and I'll help you understand what is the gospel, what it means to be a Christian, what is so wonderful and glorious about Jesus. This is the most important thing you can do. Please do not put it off. The door is narrow, but it is worth it in the end. And by the grace of God, that door is still open for you. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, Take the words of your son and apply them to each and every one of us here today. And that, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, you would shepherd our souls and that you would correct us where we need to be corrected. That you would awaken the sleeping and that you would encourage the faint-hearted and strengthen the faith of those who are already your people. Father, we thank you that even as we consider such a weighty call as this, that your grace is still sufficient to cover such sin of rebellion, no matter who we are. And I ask, especially for those who are dead in sin, that you would open their eyes And that you would bring to life where there is death. And Lord, we thank you for giving us this precious gift of the sacrament.
of the Lord's Supper. That you've given to us to indeed by it strengthen our faith through these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup. We ask that you would set these apart for your holy purposes to minister to our souls and help us to understand that by partaking of this that we are proclaiming that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from your mouth, namely Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate. Lord, press these things to us, the joy that Christ is life, that he is the bread of life, Confirm these things and seal them to us by your spirit. And again, we ask that you would strengthen the faith of all who belong to you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.